episode 421 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, commercial-free still. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views that are expressed here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family members, not even our pets. Joining me today for the News Roundup, uh, Gus Hurwitz, Professor of Law at the University of Nebraska, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culprit Partners, formerly with Justice and the National Security Council, Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute, and a hundred other things. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Let's jump right in. The one cyber law story from the week was the Albania story in which Iran seems to have shut down Albania's several uh, Albania websites and gotten in I guess a little more trouble than they expected, but maybe not that much. How did this play out? Yeah, so the attacks were recently attributed to Iran, as you suggested, by both some entities in the private sector, Mandiant, Microsoft, others, as well as the U.S. government. And Albania responded relatively swiftly after the announcement of the attribution and has, among other things, cut off diplomatic ties with Iran and has made a big deal of that. The U.S. has imposed some additional sanctions on Iranian intelligence, how much that cumulative effect has on top of other sanctions that are already in place is not entirely it was like the clear. Fourth time, it uh, was the fourth time they'd <laughs> sanctioned the MOIS itself. It was, yeah. You kind of say, okay. And in fact, it was sort of an embarrassing press release when they said, this time we're we doing it under a, different, under a different executive order. Boy, that'll put the fear of God in <laughs> right. um, But, you know, I think there are a couple of things that are somewhat notable about this. If I had to kind of search for some meaning in all of this, one is the speed with which people have acted both in attributing this and in imposing some official responses. Seems like it's gradually been accelerating over time and all of this has happened, I think, pretty quickly. And we can joke about it a little bit because of the cumulative effects, because it's Albania, so on and so forth. But the responses have been significant. And I think in some ways, what you will see with this over time is we are kind of setting precedents here with these responses. We are in some ways establishing cyber norms that a lot of people talk about. It's maybe not as official as other people would like it, but in, on some level it is happening organically around us. And I think that's not a bad thing, right? Even if it may not in the short term get Iran to change its behavior. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical about how effectively we're setting norms here, but Jamil? No, that's exactly what I was going to say, Stuart. Look, I don't disagree with Nate that it's important to set cyber norms and that we ought to do that. I worry, though, that, you know, if it's kind of like, you know, the tree that falls in the proverbial forest, right? If the sanctions don't have an effect and don't affect Iran's behavior, have you really set norms or have we actually the wrong norm, which is you can do this, we'll penalize you, you'll still get away with it and it won't hurt. And therefore, the, it's the wrong norm, which is you can do this sort of thing, right? So I actually worry more about that. I think Nate's right. We have to set cyber norms. I'm not sure this does that. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I would just offer one thing for you guys to think about, and that is the fact that it is not effective on certain states who are bad actors and have suffered through sanctions of all sorts of type doesn't necessarily mean you're not setting it. It doesn't mean it's not going to have an effect on others. The fact that it doesn't work on everybody is something you could say of established international legal norms, right? Um, mm. And so I think it can still have value, but I think you're right that because this is Iran, because it is a somewhat belligerent state that has not been susceptible to 
to to deterrence on a number of fronts that we can probably expect for them to continue this kind of behavior and for these norms not to impact them. In fact, I think they launched a second attack either simultaneous with or right after they were sanctioned. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The one other thing that's interesting here is they had a reason for picking on Albania. Yeah. And it was because Albania is now the host for Mujahideen Ekalk, which has been around since the 70s. And I followed them. They were killing a lot of Americans in the 70s in Iran. And then they started killing a lot of the, the, the Islamist regime because they were fighting with the, uh, the Muslim, the Islamists over who was going to run Iran. They got kicked out of there and they ended up going to shelter under Saddam Hussein so they could be used as a proxy force against the Iranians. And that did not work out very well for them. And the, they became a big problem for the U.S. We didn't know what to do about them. We finally flew them all apparently to Albania so they would not constantly go across the border and cause problems with Iran. It was a really interesting, they, there is a, there's a great book about their role in history, I suspect, because they're kind of the, um, the zealot of terrorist groups. They're constantly showing up in the middle of other bigger events. All right. Well, and, and they're the ones, yeah. and they're the ones who released the information. I think, if I remember correctly, about the, the some of the Iranian underground nuclear facilities. They were the first out they of the did. gates on some of that stuff. Yeah, they did. Everybody has used them, and I think the Israelis used them to do that. Saddam Hussein used them, and uh, the Islamists used them to fight the Shah. It's it's been a tough. 50 years for MEK, I got to say. All right. Speaking of tough years, the privacy bill is that everybody thought, oh, wow, we're close to doing it. We've got Republicans and Democrats singing Kumbaya and all getting on board and uh, 52 to three or something or 53 to two. Anyway, the uh, Commerce Committee said, yes, we love this bill in the House. And now it's running into lots of trouble. Gus, where is it? So I'd ask, Stuart, have you heard the one about the privacy bill? But the punchline is that everyone talks about the joke, but no one ever tells it. This is just the latest iteration of people saying, oh, this is the closest we've ever got into a privacy bill. Well, there's a reason that they never pass. And the fact that we've gotten some excitement about it this time and Congress is actually talking about it doesn't really overcome any of those uh, substantial obstacles. So the latest is while we have the White House trumpeting it and saying, oh, this is really great, Nancy Pelosi has come out against it, which is a, a big problem in the House. And yes. Cantwell has also come out uh, opposed to it. And reason- Which means it can't get out of the Senate committee. Right. Yep. Which, I, it's the same old story. It's a compromise bill. You've got some states that have stronger privacy legislation and want stronger regulation. And the closer any federal bill comes to satisfying them, the more you're going to lose from the folks who want to have a lighter touch regulation, if any regulation at all. So this is just the, the latest iteration of that. We, I'm going to be a bit of a broken record today, probably talking about some FTC stuff and competition stuff mixed in with all of this. My, my favorite potential twist of the knife for the privacy legislation is the Federal Trade Commission has recently announced a doomed from the start rulemaking or advance notice of proposed rulemaking that's never going to amount to anything. We can talk endlessly about why that is if you want, but the fact that the FTC has stepped in and said, hey, we're going to do all of this privacy stuff, that has taken the pressure off of some in Congress to try and make something uh, happen here, sure. even though anyone watching what the FTC is doing will recognize, hey, that this isn't going anywhere. It, I think especially with Cantwell, it is 
taking the pressure for Congress to do something a little off. I feel like my chestnuts have been pulled from the fire by Nancy Pelosi and Maria Cantwell. This does not usually happen to me, but I was looking through the privacy bill and I'm really skeptical of artificial intelligence regulation because I think it's especially the stuff where they claim there's bias and we're going to stop it because I suspect that it's not really about bias, but about something else. And the provision on anti-bias requirements that just was smuggled into the privacy bill and that nobody is talking about is a recipe for imposing racial and gender preferences and quotas all across the American economy and American society. It's as blunt as you have to assess your algorithm for harm. One of the harms is disparate impact, which means no discrimination was intended, but there is a demonstrable statistical disparity in how various protected groups are treated, and you have to cure it. And there's only one way to cure it, and that is to impose quotas on your artificial intelligence. And so people are going to end up really forced into imposing quotas on anything that uses AI algorithms. It's a disastrous policy. And if we can kill the bill because it's not liberal enough, I will be happy just because this provision is so bad. And it's just one of a number of provisions in there that are beleaguered by really messy definitions and incoherent and contentious definitions. It's unclear at this point whether the bill would kill off targeted advertising basically, which is a big deal. And that's just one example. And we can't legislate kumbaya outcomes because the world is in a kumbaya world. I think the real problem here is that this was just friendly enough to industry. The industry got behind it and said, we'll take this deal. And one of the things they wanted to take was, yeah, we're all for racial preferences if it means that we can't be sued. We'll do, you know, as whatever preferences you want, as long as you promise we can't be accused of discrimination. So this was a deal in which the Republicans got on board because the Fortune 500 told them this was a great bill or a good enough bill. And I think they sold out most of the people who vote. Well, that's part of it. Another big reason just to, at the risk of talking substance about the bill for a second, that one of the biggest challenges for the bill is it would preempt Cal Privacy, the CCPA, and a lot of the other state legislation out there. And that's a big reason that industry got behind it. It provided certainty. It preempted a lot of incoherent and inconsistent legislation. And of course, that's why Nancy Pelosi is not supporting it, because hey, our legislation is the best. What do you mean this is going to preempt it? So you're exactly right. It was just generous enough to industry that industry was willing to jump in and support it. And it turns out once industry supports it, a lot of other folks who might have supported it stop supporting it. Really, California's state motto should be, we are to the 21st century what South Carolina was to the last two. (laughs) Okay, Jamil. (laughs) The chief security officer at Uber is on trial for some very serious felonies, obstruction of justice and wire fraud, for a very controversial, but to my mind, kind of arguable uh, decision about how to treat a data breach. And it's getting, to my mind, this is the first time I've agreed with the take that the New York Times has had on a story in 
deck, but the New York Times is actually surprisingly sympathetic to Joe Sullivan, the chief security officer. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that there's a lot to be said for the challenges that chief security officers face. I mean, you know, look here, Sullivan took a situation where Uber had a breach, right? Uh, directed them to the bug bounty program, these hackers who wanted a payment, directed the bug bounty program and then paid them out of that and then didn't report. And so the federal government saying, look, you had an obligation to report, but you didn't do that. That's obstruction of justice. I mean, this is a hard case, I think, for the government to prove up under the standards and the statute. I think it's a questionable use of the authority. I think there are a lot of reasons why the government is upset with Uber's behavior. Joe Sullivan appears to be the target of that ire. And look, there's a lot of reasons, you know, there are a lot going on in Uber that Sullivan sort of helped help. He, he was there. He was there for he was there for the Travis Kalanick years. He was a right. Travis Kalanick guy at some level. And so the government assumes a kind of scofflaw attitude uh, from that regime. And look, that regime had a scofflaw attitude. It's one of the things that made Uber so successful, right? And it pushed them up against you know, the Taxi Cab Commission and the like, and they rolled over them and with, with some taxes that might some call questionable, but ultimately have benefited all of us because we have this great car ride-sharing economy that never would have developed but for Uber's brash tactics. And that, so that spilled over into the computer security arena and Sullivan implemented some of that. Now, you might say, look, is the government really want to go after Travis Kalanick? Was he really the decision maker? Was Sullivan simply be the implementer? This happens a lot, right? Where the government goes after the mid-level folks. I don't even call Joe Sullivan by any standard at the lower level person in this game, right? But sort of maybe the mid-level to Travis's Uber CEO ego, Uber as in both the context of the name of the company and his own ego. But look, I think that this is really a harsh standard to apply to CISOs who are trying to find a path forward in very challenging circumstances. Is this a sign that those CISOs who decide to pay ransom to people who are seeking ransoms when they're under pressure, they might be subject to sanctions laws if they pay, if they unwittingly pay a sanctioned entity? I mean, that's a real problem and a very real today problem. If this is a sign of that, that's bad news. Maybe this is just a sign of Uber had real problems back then. They wanted to go after somebody. This is the guy they picked, but it could also be a sign and I think a worrisome sign for CISOs who need to lean forward and who are going to be inclined not to do so as they see one of their own being prosecuted here. I suspect that that this was the U.S. attorney wanted Travis Kalanick's head. And the way to get it was to get Joe Sullivan to flip on him. And they were hoping that that would happen. And then when they finally realized it wasn't going to happen, they decided to double down and added all these wire fraud charges, which are, I think, the most extreme of the charges against him in the hopes that that would bring him around. And when it didn't, they had to try it. But I actually think while there's no doubt that what happened here, these were kids mostly who were uh, uh, hoping to get a big score because they'd gotten in and Uber kind of talked them down and talked them around and got them to promise to destroy the data and sign NDAs. And it was, and, and they wanted to sign it anonymously and they did a bad job of that. And they got identified and ultimately prosecuted, but it was, they were on the border. They were on the wrong side of the line. And I think Uber and Sullivan thought they had pulled them over to the right side of the line and had brought them within the spirit of their bounty program, even though they were paying too much and didn't get the usual assurances. So it, there's plenty to criticize in this, but to say it was criminal is hard. 
but for the fact that the FTC was investigating a previous breach and they decided they weren't going to talk about this one while the FTC was investigating that one, that that raises some eyebrows. So this goes in both directions, but I do think a big part of this was the politics of it. Kalanick was out by the time this got finally surfaced. And Nicole Perlroth, who often writes these stories for the New York Times, had what I would describe as a remarkably candid and aggressive tweet storm in which she blamed by name the communications director who's still there at Uber for basically having decided to flip the script and hang Sullivan out to dry as a way of saving her CEO and and then tried to get Pearl Roth fired for having asked questions about why she was doing it and about the legitimacy of her story. So it has both internal corporate politics and then also all the people who went Uber, as far as I can tell, came straight out of the Obama administration. So there's an element of politics at the national level in this as well. So it'll be interesting to see. I think he's got a decent shot. They've already established, it appears, that Sullivan wasn't supposed to make the call about whether this was a legitimate bounty and whether it was a disclosable event. That was the general counsel and the general counsel got immunity, or at least the lawyer in the general counsel's office did. And so there's going to be a real argument about whether the right person was indicted for this decision. Yeah. And look, I think the challenge you have here is, right, you want you want CISOs trying to find a way and you want corporations trying to find a way to mitigate damage, right? Yeah. And for all the problems that Uber had, for all the things that Klanik did or that Sullivan may have empowered Klanik to do, this appears to be one that actually benefited consumers, right? In that they tried to protect the information as much as possible, right? I think where they went wrong, frankly, was after they'd gone through all this, they still try to withhold it from the government. They still try to withhold it from the next team that came in, right? The sort of the clean team, mm-hmm. you know, Kostawi and the, and the likes that came in. And I think that's where they started to get themselves into trouble. And when you're doing edgy stuff, right, this is one of the challenges. And so, look, I think there's a lot, of, I think you're right, there's a lot of blame to go around. I think this is an edgy play by the government and probably a little overaggressive play. And I'm not sure, I think it really sets the wrong incentives for CISOs who we want protecting consumer information and trying to find a path forward that's more protective on the back end. You know, there seems to be this theory, right, that government regulation can solve all this, but really private actors are going to be the biggest players. Say the wrong incentives to private actors is bad for everybody. So I I have a theory that the biggest loser in the long run from this will be the FBI. Because if you're a CISO or a general counsel advising a CISO, And the question arises, well, should we call the FBI and brief them on the details of this breach? I think the general counsel has to say, well, what do you think the FBI is going to be doing after you've introduced him to everybody and explained exactly what your thinking is about that if the Justice Department decides that this is really more like the Joe Sullivan case than like you being a good guy? We don't want to bring law enforcement in if they're going to end up t- taking everything we've shared with them and using it against us. And Stuart, that's exactly why all these mandatory reporting laws that are supposed to help protect the cyber environment are going to make everything better if we just tell the federal government more, right? General counsels and lawyer, outside lawyers like yourself are going to advise companies, hey, do as little as possible as you can under the law because you might run into a Joe Sullivan problem. So in every circumstance, right, I always believe that creating the right incentives, whether they're incentives created by prosecutions, incentives created by regulation, or incentives created by law, it is better to get the government and the company on the same side of the incentive street 
than it is to punish them or threaten them with the stick or prosecution because you're just all you're going to get is less cooperation at the end of the day. And these are cooperative, collaborative environments that have to be developed if we're going to succeed in the long run. It might make you feel good to go punish somebody and to put Joe Sullivan in jail and to fine name your company for the breach. But that is very rarely going to get you the kind of outcomes you want in the long run, which is protecting the larger ecosystem. It's worth. So let me take it. I, I just wanted to uh, jump in on, on that point. It's really worth taking what Jamil just said to heart about incentives and thinking about what are prosecutors' incentives, what are the agency or the regulators' incentives, and especially with these really tricky, thorny issues that are going to be multi-year, multi-decade problems to solve. No individual regulator or prosecutor has any incentive to be patient like that for their career, bringing a big case, bringing some, enacting some new rule, bringing some litigation, getting the big win against some individual that gets the splashy headlines. That's what their incentive is. So understanding those incentives on both sides and how the government incentives can be exactly the wrong ones is really helpful in understanding what the heck is going on here. So Nate, in the middle of all this, CISA has put out an RFI, a request for information, about how it ought to implement the mandatory reporting requirement for cyber incidents in critical infrastructure. I looked at that. It looked like it was what you'd expect, but it shows they're clearly getting serious about some of the hard questions. Yeah. And moving pretty quickly. I mean, you know, they had additional time to to move this forward, but they've done it in, in I guess, just under six months since the law was signed. And so they're moving fast. But you're right. There's some pretty consequential questions they're going to have to address in this thing. And we should see it in, in the next couple of weeks in, in detail. And they're also doing some, they're doing a little bit of a roadshow here. Jen Easterly is doing some visits around the country. And as you see from the one she did this past week, a big part of their message is, don't worry, industry. We, we understand your concerns and we're taking them into account. We don't want this to be too onerous. Only time will tell how much that's true. But but I think throughout the legislative process, there were a number of, of folks in industry who were pushing back pretty hard on some of the requirements and trying to water it down. And as you all were just talking about how you get the public sector and the private sector aligned and working together and setting the right incentives, I think there's a, a fair amount on the line here with this proposed rulemaking. So it'll be very interesting to see when it comes out. Okay. So speaking of tension between government and the three, Jamil, a bunch of Republicans said to Apple, why are you going to buy chips from a big Chinese chip company? We're trying to starve the, their chip industry, not fill it with Apple's coffers. And I didn't see any sign that the administration is taking the same view, but how did that play out? Well, look, this is obviously a challenge. I mean, it is a problem when you have major American companies funding essentially R&D in China for more advanced semiconductors, right? The U.S. government's taken a very strong position on this. We saw the passage of the CHIPS Act, right? There's discussion of additional sanctions being put on tooling going to China, right? There is no upside for the United States writ large economically or national security-wise for China to have a significant share of this market and a growing share of this market, which they are trying to build. And so U.S. manufacturers engaging in this kind of business, well, it makes sense from a bottom line perspective, right? Because these chips are frankly cheaper and and easier to build there is not good for them in the long run because it makes them dependent on these Chinese supply chains. It's bad for our national security writ large, right? We see a different version of this story when it comes to TSMC and Apple's purchasing of, and frankly, funding of advanced development of, you know, three nanometer technology at TSMC. Again, TSMC, the Taiwanese allies of ours, TSMC is building a a chip factory here in the United States. Those are all good things. 
The challenge, of course, is TSMC is subject to threat from China right across the Taiwan Strait, right, as we saw during the Pelosi visit. And so putting all of our chips in the China and Taiwan basket, literally all of our chips in that basket, is a disaster for American national security. Congress has recognized that. It's putting billions of dollars behind the effort to build fabs here in the United States. But those, let's be candid, those fabs are going to take a long time to build. It's going to take a while to get that production up and capable. And it's still not going to be the most advanced capability to build that advanced capability here, we're going to require American purchasers of chips like Apple to buy those chips here and say, we're going to want that production moved here, right? Where it's less resilient, it's, it's less, it's more resilient, less likely to threat from China and not be doing what they're doing, which is buying memory chips, admittedly, sort of things that can eventually be a commodity style acquisition from China directly. And so I think this is a problem with a lot of dimensions to it, but I think we've got to put pressure on American companies like Apple and others to not engage in this kind of behavior that's going to in the long term be detrimental to their own economic security and our national economic and national security writ large. And so yet, what, do you, what, do you th- what do you think of Apple's response, which was, don't worry, nobody outside of China is going to have a Chinese chip in their iPhone. This is stuff we're going to buy and then recycle into Chinese iPhone sales. I mean- Look, that that may be the case. First of all, I don't buy it for a second, right? I mean, the reality is that it's very hard to create a supply chain that has a set of ships coming from here that go to one place and a set of ships that go to here, right? I mean, that's very hard to construct. And it's not been Apple's practice, right? It's not been any of these companies' practice because it's not an economically efficient practice, right? You find one big supplier or two big suppliers. You have to supply the bulk of the chips. You don't try to allocate them across countries, right? And to the extent you do, you know, you just make your supply chain that much more difficult and you're not able to achieve economies of scale. Why not simply purchase those chips here, right? Get to an economic efficient perspective here or from an allied country. And again, Taiwan is an an option, not an ideal one for all the reasons we've talked about, but it is an option. And look, the other piece of this, I think that's challenging for Apple to make that claim is, look, where are all of our laptops, Apple laptops and those manufactured? Where are all those iPhones manufactured, right? You'd be taking chips from somewhere else, bringing them to China to put them together there and making them potentially vulnerable to exploits in any event, Right. So if you really want to be effective yeah. about this, it's not just chip acquisition. It's where you're building these, where you're packaging them, right? And it's also where you're getting your overall CPU and GPU base. And we know that's Taiwan, which is, again, as I said, a challenge because of the threat from China. So there's a larger story here. Frankly, if we really want to stoke the U.S. semiconductor industry and build it back up here, right, the fast way to make that happen would be for Apple to move all this chip production to the United States, tell TSMC and all of its other providers, you've got to build it here. That'd be the most rapid way to do it. That isn't happening. They, they would have to consider themselves an American company for that to happen. And I'm not sure they do. Okay. So the sanctions on tornado cash that we talked about last year, last week, have now descended into a welter of litigation, which is exactly, that's the sweet spot for the Cyber Law Podcast. Nate, can you tell us what's happening there? Yeah. The response to the sanctions has been a little less than lukewarm, I would say, among certain folks in the cyber or the crypto industry. First off, Coinbase has funded a lawsuit challenging the sanctions on the grounds that Treasury has basically exceeded its authority and is trampling on the rights of Coinbase and and individual crypto investors. And the argument is basically that because this is not sanctioning an individual, a country or a company or any particular entity, and instead going after this more nebulous list of software and the individuals who have been using it, um, that that Treasury actually lacks the authority to do it. And there are others- And there's there's a certain- 
appeal to the argument that you need to tell us who you're sanctioning and you didn't sanction anybody because there is no body. At least there's nobody running Tornado Cash. It's a bunch of smart contracts that run themselves. And so when you say you're sanctioning Tornado Cash, it turns out you're sanctioning people who run their money through Tornado Cash. And this is weirdly described in the cryptocurrency community as censoring. I'm not sure that's really what's going on, but they like that. Uh, yeah. uh, but there is an argument here that it's, it's the lack of a person to be sanctioned means that all of these things don't do business with this person become a little fuzzy in the context of doing business using a particular tool. Yeah, for sure. And I would assume that if you really cornered Treasury, they would admit privately that the theory is a bit novel here. I think they'll have arguments that there's enough clarity about what they're sanctioning, particularly when you consider who their real audience is here. I don't think they're going to end up going after some individual who downloads the software and uses it. I think what they're trying to do is sever the connection between individuals who are using it and the coinbases of the world right the right. you know the trading platforms and the others whose cooperation is necessary for people to to exercise and utilize their cryptocurrencies i on balance i would say you know whether you agree with coinbase or not at least they're going about this the right way tether is taking a little bit more of a gutsy approach to this we'll say and just saying that they're not going to really abide by the sanctions, right? And until the courts rule on this question of whether or not Treasury's sanctions are legitimate here, that's probably not a fight I would pick. And this isn't a course of action I would engage in. It's a bit risky. And if the courts come down on Coinbase's side, Tether could find itself in a heap of trouble here. Yeah, I think I, this is an APA, Administrative Procedure Act claim, plus some constitutional claims this not very appealing to me, at least, uh, argument that there's a First Amendment right to just yeah. implement any damn code you want, a, and a Fifth Amendment claim by they that you say they aren't going to bring this against uh, individual uh, small holders, but of course that's exactly who is bringing this lawsuit or uh, yeah. not paying for it. Coinbase is paying for it. They went out and found some appealing individuals to bring the claim, so it may be a little hard for Treasury to avoid at least saying something about individuals. Oh, yeah, Although in my sure. experience, you know, an APA claim against the government is playing on the government's court and they have a bunch of standard responses that, that really make it very hard to make forward progress in those claims. So it'll Especially be in this watch. kind of context, right? Exactly. Um, with OFAC, <laughs> so it's doubly difficult. A reminder for our listeners, I have now laid out my reasons for thinking that cryptocurrency security is always going to be worse than our not very good cybersecurity generally, and has to do with the fact that there's nobody to whom you can responsibly disclose at least three quarters of the security holes that people are finding. There's nobody in charge because it's all been decentralized away, which means that you either ignore them or you announce them and everybody starts stealing all of the suddenly vulnerable stuff, or you try to fix it and then everybody sees that what you're trying to fix and like a Microsoft patch, it's reverse engineered and most of the stuff is stolen. So it is, there's just no way to do responsible disclosure. And 
to the extent we have cybersecurity in the rest of the ecosystem, it's because of responsible disclosure. So it's going to be very messy. So anybody who wants to follow that up, it's in Lawfare. You can just Google me in Lawfare and find it. All right, let's jump back to more about the trails of trying to actually do anything about big tech in Congress. Two bills that people had high hopes for because they had some bipartisan support are in trouble, guys. Both of them antitrust related. Yeah, antitrust or surviving big tech, I guess we could say for journalism. We've got the JCPA, Journalism Competition Preservation Act or Protection Act. Yeah, I guess it's protection because it's protectionist. The This is intended to help protect local journalism by allowing the journalism industry, larger providers most likely, cartelize in negotiation against big tech. And lo and behold- So it would be the, would the idea be here that like every small newspaper other you know other than the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal would all get together and form this little group that says we won't let you have our news until you start paying us? Uh, Kind of, except uh, if you look at advocates for small journalism and really local uh, journalism, they all hate this bill because the smallest entities, they'd be locked out of these negotiations. They nominally might be able to support or participate in them, but they're too small. It would be the larger entities Mm -hmm. that would control the agenda. And really, this uh, legislation has been panned by both the left and the right. But that's not why it kind of died, though it's kind of a zombie bill at this point trying to come back today. It was in hearing for markup last week, and Ted Cruz decided to throw in an amendment that would basically outlaw content moderation as part of the bill, leading its one of its sponsors. Meaning they, that they could not negotiate about content moderation with Google and Facebook. Yep. Yep. Which you kind of wonder why would they be negotiating over that? But you could also imagine that you'd end up with a, a set of content moderation rules that were, that it were imposed on journalism. The reality, I, we should get to the double punchline of the bill and then the reality of the bill, which is the same with ICOA. One of its sponsors, Senator Klobuchar, withdrew it from the hearing last week from markup because of this amendment. And everyone thought it was dead, but it's apparently coming back to uh, the committee again. So uh, it's not dead yet. But what's going on? Well, it was only passed because the one Democrat who provided the margin of victory on the committee was out sick. Right. Ossoff was uh, out with with a, a COVID. So it was withdrawn, but now it's back. But it's going to have the same fate and same problems as ICOA, which is that the reason that folks like Senator Cruz are supporting it is because they view it as a vehicle for trying to do some content moderation chicanery against big tech. And it turns out that the left supporters of the bill don't want those provisions in there. So you can't imagine that this is going to go anywhere, especially since a lot of the typical left-leaning support groups, free press, EFF, public knowledge, they all hate this bill. So you can't imagine it's that's going to go anywhere. And that brings us to ICOA, the long zombified Senator Klobuchar just won't admit that it's dead antitrust reform legislation, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, which the, the only reason that this bill has any legs is because folks on the right who support it view it as a way to make content moderation by the big tech platforms illegal. And the moment and the legislation, the language is unclear, though amendment 
amendments have been proposed from the left to make clear that this would not outlaw content moderation. And the moment that that happens, you lose all the support on the right. So the, these are strange bedfellows who don't like each other, which means you're not going to be getting any baby bills out of this legislative process. Yeah. And I look, this is when the people who are paid a million dollars a year to lobby Congress earn the million because they are feeding the hostility and suspicion and sharpening the differences over the bill in order to bring it down. And I think they've succeeded. So there's a fun little fight going over at Bloomberg about this, I think. There have, in the last three or four weeks, been two articles basically saying big tech lobbying is just gangbusters this year. They're buying off Senator Schumer. That's why this legislation isn't going to happen. And then we had another one just last week saying basically Senator Klobuchar is blaming all this lobbying. Brad Stone, also writing for Bloomberg in between these two articles, had a nice piece saying, hold up a second, guys. The antitrust stuff is important, but have you heard of the CHIPS Act? Have you heard of the Inflation Reduction Act? Have you heard of uh, the privacy legislation? Have you heard of the proposed uh, labor market regulation? Have you heard about the national security regulations that are going on? All of this stuff affects big tech. So there's a lot of big tech lobbying going on right now, a lot of money coming in to D.C. relating to big tech, but only a sliver of it is relating to ICOA and JCPA. There are bigger fish in this sea right now. Jamil? Yeah, and frankly, let's be honest, right? I mean, maybe could it be that these bills are having problems because they're poorly written and not well thought out. I mean, let's just be candid, right? The ideas behind some of these pieces of legislation are to build exactly the kind of coalition of unlikely suspects that Gus lays out, right? Uh, A combination of the right that's upset about the way they've been treated by big tech and the left that's upset about labor issues or associated with the modern economy and the tech economy, and really not actually real problems with these companies, which is like this antitrust claim, this antitrust bill, ACOA, right, is focused on a handful of companies, right? The largest companies, this idea somehow that if we just go after them, it'll solve all these problems that we have. And the reality is that it's not going to solve any of those problems because it's not about those problems. That's about targeting a handful of companies in our economy. Frankly, the most important companies that are likely to help us and protect against the Chinese growing capabilities. We need that speed and scale. It's this sort of, again, one of these ham-handed efforts with poor definitions of the legislation, not well thought out. And then, and of course, the answer is, oh, well, it must be big tech lobbying money. Maybe it's you haven't written a good bill. Your bill is full of bad ideas and everyone's just starting to figure it out. And maybe you should do a better job, work harder, think it through. And by the way, take the criticism seriously. And when you go make adjustments to the legislation, don't make them surfacey adjustments, right? To address quote unquote cybersecurity concerns. And then for the people who actually understand cybersecurity, look at it and say, this does nothing. And then just ignore that and be like, well, we've made changes, problem solved. I mean, engage in a real active effort to address the concerns of your bill. And then maybe it's not about logging. Maybe it's just, you know, you could do a better job. Could be. Although I think I'm not convinced that when we look deep into the CHIPS Act six months from now, we're going to say, oh, that was a brilliant piece of drafting. It happened to be a piece of drafting that Silicon Valley really liked. And so the problems with its drafting will only show up after implementation starts. But I don't get yeah. I don't doubt that. Look, sure, you're right. You're right to raise concerns. I mean, look, Chips Act, could it have been better, right? Could we have had better guardrails in? Could we have protected the American economy better and the threat of Chinese production of certain kinds of semiconductors better? Absolutely. Is it still a net benefit and a step in the right direction ultimately yeah. for our national security? Yes. 
Okay. And so I, I'm, I I'm willing to take a half loaf there on the antitrust bill. I'm not willing. I'm not willing to undermine our best competitors against China because it makes people feel good about big tech regulation and makes people on the right feel like, oh, we finally got those mean big tech people. And people on the left say, oh, we finally got those mean big tech people when we're literally taking ourselves out of the game in the fourth inning. It's insane. Yeah. So I'm more open to the idea that the because of network effects, some of these platforms have gotten to the point where they're telling the market and frankly, the American public how it's going to be instead of trying to compete for their favor. But the solutions, if you if you think that one of the ways in which the platforms have abused their power is to try to shape discourse to match Silicon Valley values, then you need something on content moderation. But that has now become a, a dividing line in which if you're on the left, you just think that what we need is just more content moderation. You, you can't have too much speech suppression from Silicon Valley because they mostly agree with the values that Silicon Valley is. Now, Stuart, um, I think you have an op-ed on this that you have drafted relating to bias in machine learning and AI. And a lot of what content moderation is automated content moderation using machine learning. And a lot of the reason yes. that the right doesn't like what's going on with content moderation is because Sometimes reality is unfair to your views. Well, or maybe because it incorporates all of the biases of the people who are running the program right now, which tend to be leaning left. But I agree with you. It's dead. Let's move on. Cryptocurrency regulation. The White House has a report from their Office of Science and Technology Policy, Nate, that says we're really worried about the global warming impact of cryptocurrency mining, which is now kind of 1% of electric power as our, uh, production, which is a lot. Yeah. It's more of a contribution to global warming than Australia makes. And so they want to have, they want to do something about it. Wasn't sure what, and I've got a question. That for makes you. me feel better because I wasn't alone then in no. <laughs> being, being unable to decipher what exactly it is they want to do. The one thing that I was stressed that really bothered me was they kept saying, oh, it's a real problem for resilience. And yet I remember in July when Texas was kind of, when the whole Texas grid was at the edge of collapse, the crypto miners who had all set up a shop in Texas were told, you need to stop mining yeah. for 10 hours at a time in order to prevent the grid from tipping over into collapse. And they did, and it pretty much seems to have prevented a collapse. And there's just no, no doubt that while it costs you a little something if you're a crypto miner to shut down, it's not like you're making aluminum and there's less aluminum at the end of the day when you don't run. It's that you're postponing or perhaps losing out to others who don't have to shut down. But it does seem to me that they are, that crypto mining is the kind of interruptible use of power that if you're relying on things like wind power, you probably want. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think I was joking slightly before, but I think this is much more about messaging from OSTP. I think, you know, what we're seeing here and to a degree, what you'll see with the forthcoming reports from Treasury that are growing out of Biden's executive order from March are an effort to shine light and focus people's attention on the downsides of cryptocurrency. Treasury is reportedly going to send these four reports to the White House and that discuss extensively the risk of fraud associated with cryptocurrency, the hazards of stable coins, which they've already been on the record talking about and pushing for legislative action on. 
And so I think what you're seeing by elements of the executive branch, if it's not a coordinated effort by the White House as a whole, is to kind of, you know, shine a light on this get people to focus on it and urge action. And I think the million dollar question is going to be what actions are they actually going to take? Treasury in particular, I think it's clear that they're pretty clear eyed when it comes to the problems associated with cryptocurrency Um, from what they propose in these reports, all the way to the actions we were just talking about with respect to tornado cash. They're not afraid to act even in, in somewhat novel ways. But I think the million dollar question is that broader action on this front is going to require the approval of the White House and in some cases even Congress. And that's where I think the big action is going to be. And I think that's why you're seeing them talk about this more and try to lay out the case. Yeah, you're right. I should not be saying, why are they writing this report at OSTP? This is the way government policy probably should be made. The White House said, cryptocurrency, big deal, lots of moving parts. Let's tell everybody who has a piece of this to send us a report in three months or four months or five months and tell us what they think. And this is OSTP delivering the mail. Treasury is going to deliver the mail. And it's not fair to say, why did you write this report now? They wrote it because they were told to. And this is part of kicking off a debate about how to deal with cryptocurrency in the future. I think oh, okay. I think that's right. But I do think your fundamental point is, is an important one, which is at some point you have to figure out what you want to do about it. And that to me is still not clear. And they need to double down on that a little bit. Well, maybe what they need is a listening session, which is <laughs> even less than putting out a report. Gus, I was kind of a astonished to see the White House holding a listening session and then about their tech agenda and then not inviting any tech companies anybody ever heard of except Mozilla. What was that about? And, and, and is this just so that they could do a press release that says, hey, we really care about these issues? I, I cannot understand what purpose this has other than a press release. So they announced six areas of priorities and they're going to solve privacy and online competition and that Section 230 thing, they're going to fix it and they're going to save the kids. They're going to solve a misinfo and disinfo and algorithmic bias and these are top priorities and they're going to do something about it and no idea what they're going to do about it, no idea how they're going to do anything about it, but they're here, they're from the government and they're here to help. It's yeah, it, was weird. It, it was a weird sort of event. It was more, I think, so it's a press release and also a let's get our allies together to maybe do some strategizing about this stuff. But I th- this is all the same stuff that we've been talking about all day today and for, all day, every day for the last several months, several years. So this has the air of having been somebody's project in the White House. They wanted to have this. They said it'll be really good for the administration. Let's do it. And other people said, well, okay, if I have to show up, I'll show up. But nobody actually knew why they were doing it other than somebody at the White House or some set of interest groups just really wanted to have it. And so they had it. They issued the press release. It's probably the last we'll hear of them. It's similar to what's going on with the Federal Trade Commission's privacy-related rulemaking, which I can't imagine that's going anywhere. I mentioned it a couple minutes ago. It a lot of folks talking about this rulemaking on commercial surveillance and data security, their view is this is Lena Khan putting a marker in the sand and there's no expectation these are going to turn into rules, but instead it's a statement of priorities that might maybe help at some point in the future. No one, maybe. So 
Let me ask you about that. She's a smart woman who had enormous success with her analysis of why Amazon was, and was groundbreaking at the time is a competition threat. She's had a meteoric career. Do you think she's finally come to the limits of what she actually knows how to do and, but not the limits of her confidence about how much she knows? So interesting question. I think that she's been at those limits for a while. And I think most antitrust scholars look at her groundbreaking work and say, this is reductive and obvious, and you're repeating things that we all already know. And the reason it was so successful is because she was saying things that are popular to hear and be said in amongst a, a sector of the antitrust community, a small one, but they're not said by the mainstream community because they've been rejected. But she was out there saying them, and that got her thrust into prominence in the spotlight. And she surrounded herself with, and the Biden White House has elevated not just her, but her colleagues and peers in this movement to positions of power. And they're rapidly realizing that they face substantial legal and procedural hurdles to doing what they want to do. The I've got no idea. I've talked to a lot of folks who have no idea what's animating this rulemaking in particular, because it is so procedurally unsound from the ground floor that it can't be anything other than intended to fail, perhaps as a way of motivating congressional support, perhaps just to stake out, this is what we should be doing. Yeah. Although, you know, one of the rules of government is you need to focus on things you can get done. And if you get things done, they feed on each other. And if you fail, failure feeds on itself too. And so it, she's only got a limited staff and if she's got them running around doing an enormous rulemaking that's going to fail, she's it's bad for morale and it's bad for her reputation and it will encourage other attacks on other things that might have been more doable. Well, she, I mean, um, she's going to war with Meta. She's at war with Walmart. She's at war with Amazon and the pharmaceutical industry and the real estate industry. She's going after every company that's involved in labor negotiations. Just today, actually, uh, right now, I guess they might have just wrapped up the closed door hearing, the appeal of the Jewel Altria case, which they had lost before their ALJ, Administrative Law Judge, back in February. And the commission is hearing out an appeal, and they're going to re reverse the ALJ. Of course, because the, 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 the FTC never loses its own case and, when it's the And judge. then they're going to uh, lose on appeal or the Supreme Court when they hear Axon in another month or two. November 7th, I guess, is the date I've got circled. They're going to look at the FTC's use of its ALJs and abuses of its authority like this, and they're going to give the FTC a devastating loss of authority. And the Senate has already started oversight hearings. This is going to grind the commission to a halt informally and potentially actually formally as they lose power. Okay. All right. Well, it's a grim prospect. Well, maybe. All right. Two other I'm quick hits. I'm not, sure, I'm not yep. trying to use the word grim. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a grim prospect if you're Lena Khan. How's that? She may not realize how grim it will turn out to be, but it doesn't sound... Do it, Trying to do everything is a recipe for doing nothing. The EU AI Act, which is setting standards and many of them really bad, including on fairness, is coming in for a little bit of criticism, Gus. I thought the criticism, at least in the story I saw, was limited to kind of, well, you should have a special exception for open source because we're cute and cuddly and we shouldn't have to have any... Life. My 
my basic read on this, and I, I will admit to having too much going on here domestically to have a deep follow on the EU AI wars, but is that it is EU interventionism in AI, like we're starting to see here in the US. But I 100% could be misremembering that, Stuart. So if I am, this is your chance to tell me, Gus, you should read better. No, I think that the AI Act is, it's full of the usual grand proclamations of the rights of man. And I, as you know, I'm really worried about the determination to say AI is biased from the start. We have to fix it because there's only AI. What's great about AI, at least machine learning, is that it will reflect the world back to you more accurately than you could observe it yourself. It will tell you things about people and decisions that you couldn't make yourself, and but it will not explain to you exactly how it arrived at those insights. And so fixing it, if you think it's biased, there is no easy way to fix it. The only way to the only good way to fix it is what was done in face recognition, which is to make it more accurate. But if AI is accurately reflecting back to you a world that you don't like, a world in which women make less than men on average, then the only way you can fix what you will describe as bias when it comes reflected through the algorithm is to say, well, we're just going to decree that women should be treated as though they're making as much as men. And imposing that on the mortgage industry or the credit industry or any or advertising is saying, I think there were some discrimination, there was some discrimination systemic somewhere along the line. And the people who are going to fix it are the people who are right here in front of me. These particular employers, mm -hmm. these particular mortgage uh, companies are just going to have to bear the burden of correcting all of that systemic discri discrimination, which is mostly nuts. And so the effort to cure unfairness, especially in AI, is a recipe for these massively ham-handed interventions that we will all hate if we are allowed to see them, because the other thing that happens is they'll be buried in the algorithm and you'll just be told, yeah, the computer turned you down. And you won't be told the computer turned you down because of your gender or your race or your ethnicity. So this is, there, there's an enormous social disaster being built into these things in the name of fairness that people aren't even noticing because nobody's having this debate, except me. Society, heal thyself. Yes, exactly. Okay, last topic. The Google trial, it's like a pop-up restaurant. They had a pop-up set of opening statements and then they popped down again. Is that what's going on? Yeah, so there there was a, a hearing. This is litigation that started bubbling up in 2020 with the complaints being filed, looking at Google's payments to Apple uh, to be the default search engine on Apple devices. The trial doesn't start for a couple of months, but we had some. We had a hearing just last week with. I, I don't know if they actually were opening statements or if they were some other discussion of what the arguments would be, but they got into what the Department of Justice is arguing, that this is exclusionary conduct. Um, uh, we have spoken before, and I'm sure we'll talk again later about what's actually going on in this case, likelihood of success and everything. It's a tough case uh, either way, whether this is exclusionary conduct or not. 
Google has really strong arguments. Apple has strong arguments, which is worth noting. Apple is a counterparty to this deal. And Apple's also a subject to litigation. (laughs) And OJ has not insane arguments. I look at the structure of this deal and I kind of scratch my head why Google is making these payments because I don't think that they're anti-competitive. I think that they are. The ultimate deal is pro-consumer. And my quick assessment is this is a business risk assessment on the parts of Google and Apple. And it's not an exclusionary deal. It's a, we don't know what the but-for world looks like. So these are fair payments for us to be making. But it's going to be a fascinating and important antitrust case as it continues to play out. I use Bing a fair amount but I don't think I'd want it on my phone. So that I sort of resonate to what you're saying. It does kind of feel exclusionary that they're paying for the default, but the the default is a big deal, especially on phones. Okay, look, I, thanks, Gus. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Jamil. This was terrific to our audience. If you've got questions or comments or abuse, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you leave us a rating and a review, we will read the review on the next episode. I want to thank... Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 421 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you commercial free by Steptoe and Johnson.